This episode contains content about death and grief that may be sensitive to some. Welcome back, everyone. It's been quite a while since you last heard from me. I was not in the valley until now, and I'm slowly transitioning back to my conversations and interviews and meeting people. And to be honest, the pandemic has made it really challenging for my process. I can no longer just walk down the street and stop the most interesting person I see and talk to them. And being away from here, well, yeah, it was pretty tough. I mean, I thought of you all often, and I listened to my old episodes over and over and would think to myself, it was once so simple. We would meet and travel around and enter lots of crowded rooms and become part of each other's lives and miraculously all of those shared experiences would shape into my narrative. And though I'm back and it's wonderful, I realize that just like myself and the environments I've existed in until now, the valley too has changed as a result of the pandemic. And that's heavy. What I've truly missed is actually a memory of a world that no longer exists. And to be back here means to, yes, rejoice in the places, experiences, and friendships I have. However, it also means to confront the absence of the familiar I associate with here. So... As happy as I am to be here, and I am super happy to be writing to all of you who I've missed, know that what I share has endured a process of mourning the past and acknowledging a new reality. And this is a grief. A grief I am sure is all too common with each of you listening. The grief of walking past a spot so familiar to you and recalling in an extremely vivid way, how happy you were in a specific moment before the pandemic. And then suddenly, present day just floods back, and you realize that a moment like that may never happen again. The subject matter of today's episode is rather fitting to my exploration of this newfound grief. The Bridge Street Cemetery. Two summers ago, when I was living in Northampton, I would go for a run every night. I loved the peace of summer nights and ventured out at dark to immerse myself in that solitude. What occurred to me each night was that the sky never became pitch black the way it does in winter, but rather turned a darker and darker shade of blue with each minute. I'd start my run at Dryad's Green, run down Elm, onto Bedford Terrace, then to Butler, then King, then Market. But once I'd run towards Day Avenue, I would notice this big clearing behind the row of Queen Anne and Italianates. I could see row upon row of these sort of amorphous, shapeless humps, some rounded, some with crosses, some oblong. I'd stop and squint into the distance, only to make out gravestones. 
At 10 p.m., you'd think one might be startled by the presence of what is clearly a cemetery, what with the lore of vampires and ghosts. But I was charmed by a certain comfort in being among these graves. I had a feeling I was being watched. Not by anyone living, but by those of the past, ones who came before me. I can't explain it, but each subsequent night after this one, I would come back to the cemetery gate and feel it pulling me closer to a spirituality of the past. Rich Paracility, superintendent and tree warden of the Forestry, Parks, and Cemeteries Division of the DPW in Northampton, shared similar feelings with me in our conversations this winter. Rich has been a prominent figure in the 21st century of this almost 400-year cemetery. He knows the ins and outs of all four cemeteries in Northampton. He got in touch with me when I was trying to reach Bill Sullivan, the current foreman of the cemetery. He was so eager and generous with his time right off the bat. I knew we'd work together well to tell the story of Bridge Street. Not only that, he was extremely vulnerable and introspective on his relationship with the past and presence of this space. Through conversation with him, I've been able to share my own thoughts on the magic of the cemetery. Based on both of our experiences here, I've become comfortable with the idea that perhaps spirits do exist here. Regardless, there's definitely something sacred bridging what existed in the past with the way we exist now. I am reminded that through, though people and experiences are gone, they are never forgotten thanks to places like Bridge Street. I start our narrative with a conversation Rich and I had last month. And so when did you first get involved with working for, for the cemetery in Northampton? Uh, so I started here in 1989. I came right from UMass Stockbridge School of Agriculture as a grounds foreman for the, the uh, Park and Rec Division, okay. which is a division that maintain all the city parks. And then in two, early 2000, um, the cemetery foreman retired um, and they decided not to fill his position because of uh, budget cuts. So the vacancy was just vacated. The position was zeroed out and I ended up, they merged the parks um, and cemetery divisions together. So they under one foreman and I happened to be the parks foreman. So that's when I started doing the cemetery duties. How long had that previous foreman been in the position? Um, I wanna say probably 1980. No, I'm t I take that back. Maybe 19, 1987. Mm. So 1987 until 2003, he was the cemetery caretaker. Okay. Um, and he maintained the four city cemeteries, one including Bridge Street, Spring Grove, West Farms, and Park Street. Okay. And so for the Bridge Street Cemetery, mm -hmm. um, do you remember like your first experience being there and on the job, I guess, maybe that was when, 2003, you said? Yeah, my first, ex well, I think my first, I mean, I had been in there in the past um, just to drive around, but I think my, you know, going in there and actually having a work task and having to assess the cemetery and look at it from a perspective of maintenance and not just being a visitor gives you a totally different perspective. Mm. And um, I think the cemetery's beauty um, 
struck me because you 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 drive around the outside of the cemetery with this that has this ugly chain link fence yeah and um you drive into this one single gate that's open and you drive into this little slice of paradise mm-hmm. and i know that sounds maybe sounds strange to people but it really is it's um it's it's a park it's a it's a park-like setting that has um basically people that contributed to the city in, in many different ways in a lot of ways unknown and they they rest there and it's just beautiful mm-hmm. and you can actually be in this, in this there's one spot in the center of that cemetery you can stay in there and you really can't hear any traffic you can't hear you can you know you can hear things but especially when in the summer when the leaves are out it's just really super peaceful it's 22 acres of of uh of 22 22 acres of park-like grounds Mm. and what would you say your day-to-day job i know that you split your time between the cemetery and Mm -hmm. parks other cemeteries as well and then parks um being the parks foreman so then what would you say specifically for bridge street is your day-to-day operation uh so my day-to-day presently because i sit as a superintendent on top of all these positions my day-to-day operation is to make sure that somebody is there every day the place is mowed um whoever the staff person is there make sure that that staff person has enough support um we we have lost staff people in the last year because of budget cuts Mm -hmm. so in the last two years we've only run with one person mowing there you really need to have two people maintaining the cemetery Mm -hmm. so i work with bill who's the foreman um and you know we try to maximize the crew time that we have so we can have people get down there to help them keep up with the mowing the weed whacking Mm. you know and i think that um you know we don't we don't do a lot of full-size burials but i don't i think overall in the whole system the cemetery system this past year i think we maybe maybe buried less than 50 people which is very we're usually burying 60 to 70 a year. Mm. And this is a municipal cemetery. So there was a very large Catholic population here. Mm. Um, so in this, this was uh, our cemetery system was always considered the Protestant cemetery. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, you know, most of the Catholics were buried at St. Mary cemetery, which is on bridge road. Okay. So we have a lot of, um, we, we have a, a lot of, you know, people from all different denominations are buried in our cemeteries. There's no, you know, you don't have to be, I mean, I'm not checking someone's baptismal record to make sure that they're, right. they're this or they're that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So what does it take to be able to be able to be buried in Bridge Street Cemetery? Like what kinds of loopholes do you have to go through? Are there loopholes? No, 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 there, there's, there's no loopholes. Um, uh, anyone can uh, ask to be buried at the cemetery. They just have to pay the fee for the grave space and have to have the fee so for a grave space one single space that would fit a uh, a full-size casket is six hundred dollars wow and then you the grave opening fee is to open the grave to dig the grave and actually um enter the body into a vault is we charge a one-time fee of 775 plus the 600 plus the 600 yep and you have to buy the casket and you have to pay for the casket and you have to pay for the concrete vault, which is, you know, you're talking probably seven, $8,000. By the time you're done with the funeral home, the church, 
um, if you if you decide to use a church uh, and the cemetery fees, it's very expensive. Wow. So, I have no so idea. yeah, so a lot a lot of people actually choose to just deal with us directly. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, someone will pass away, a family member will pass away and they have them cremated mm-hmm. and they uh, may choose to do a service. They may choose they may choose not to have a service and they will come here and they'll say, I have uh, my loved one that I like to bury them in a single space. And they just deal with us directly with no funeral home. That's allowed as well. We're very flexible. Mm-hmm. You guys so, have like packages? No. Just because no. like when somebody passes away, the loved ones obviously are feel, feeling very stressed. So just to like alleviate some of that. No, I mean, that, that's actually a good question. We don't have packages, but I can really, um, I, I can tell you that I've dealt with people on all ends of how, where they're at. And it's really hard to deal with uh, someone who, a family who, who's had a loved one that just passed away, like totally unexpectedly. Mm. Um, that's really been super difficult. And I've had some amazing experiences with people that are actually actively dying that come here to pick spaces who are actually really at peace with all of it, which is like incredibly moving. A a woman, um, her name was Mrs. Young. I'll never forget her. It was my first year here. And she came to me with her husband and they lived over here in Florence. And this was at this cemetery, not Bridge Street. And they, she was, uh, had a terminal cancer, Mm. a little lady, cutest little thing. And she said, you know, she said to me, I can't, I want, you know, she came to the door I sold a lot to her husband. And then she said, can I, can we go look to see where I'm going to be buried? And I'm like, sure, I'll walk over there and I'll meet you over there. So I walked over there and she said, well, I can't get out of the car. And I'm like, okay. I said, you want me to help you? She goes, well, yes. Can you help me get out of the car? So I ended up basically carrying her to the place where she was going to be buried because she wanted to see it under her own power on her own two feet. And um, she passed away not much, maybe maybe a month later. Um, and her husband, Mr. Young, never forgot how how nicely that we treated him. And I mean, we didn't treat him any differently like we wouldn't treat someone else. But he used to come religiously every month. He would bring us donuts. He used to bring us baked goods. He made sure we had coffee. I mean, this went on for years until he could no longer drive. And then eventually he passed away himself. But that's just one experience of several I've had with people over the years. Um, and it definitely is, it's definitely hard. And, and sometimes I've had other instances where people will buy a, a space or they'll buy two spaces under duress because someone's passed away. And then they realize they're not satisfied um, because you, in this cemetery, in order to have an upright marker, an upright monument that has your family name on it, you have to have four spaces. And that's just because mm-hmm. of the, the, the way that the, the land is laid out. Um, mm-hmm. It's it, we can't act, because we are the cemetery has multiple rows. So if mm-hmm. you think of like on a piece of graph paper, so sure. the first box is one um, lot, lot, grave, uh, one lot, and then behind mm-hmm. that's another lot. You have to be able to access those with machinery to actually dig the graves. Mm. so you can't have you can't right so if you had an upright monument for every single for every single grave space you would never be able to access it as you needed it so when someone passes away what are the next steps because i 
luckily I've never had to be in charge of somebody who's passed mm -hmm. like a parent. I, both my parents are alive or a sibling or anything like that. So what is the process from when they pass away to when they're finally put into the ground? Like, I'm sure there are so many things that we don't even think of. So there are, you know, there are, every state is pretty much the same. Um, someone passes away in Massachusetts, um, you have to um, have a, a signed death certificate that states the reason the person died. Um, it ha basically, it follows the body wherever it goes. And then, for example, if someone to die at the hospital um, and they're, they, the uh, undertaker or the um, funeral director under, under the direction of a family member would actually go and take the body from the, um, the temporary morgue at the, at the uh, hospital mm -hmm. and they would bring that body to the funeral home in preparation for burial depending upon what the family members want to be the end result. Mm. So from that point, you know, um, they choose whether or not to, if you're, first of all, they choose whether or not you're actually going to have a viewing. If you're going to have a viewing, which is an open casket, which I don't know if you've been to one of those before. Only one, um, yeah. Yeah, and they're, and they're horrible, and I'm never going to have one of those. So, you know, um, it's, I'm, I'm not going to submit people to that because here I am. This is what I look like, and just remember me the way that I am. Um, so uh, if they decide to have a viewing, then what they'll do is uh, typically they will embalm the body, which means they drain all the fluids out of the body, all of the blood. They embalm the body with a fluid that has preservatives in it. Um, family members will pick out clothing that they want the undertaker to dress the body in. Um, and then they, do the, they also do makeup and hair um, to try to make the person, I guess, look as lifelike as possible for a viewing which is a very old tradition in this country that probably comes from its, its roots in Europe, I would imagine. I don't know. Um, but, and then they'll have a viewing. And then once the view, and so once, you know, all these things are going on at the funeral home, but then there's this whole back, this whole back um, communication that's going on between the funeral home and wherever the body is going to lie in repose permanently. Mm -hmm. So once a person passes away, they've collected the body, it's at the funeral home, the funeral director will call the cemetery mm. um, to find out if the family member has a grave space or, or um, we need to buy a grave space. And then they make those arrangements with the cemetery. They make a date for the funeral to happen. And then the family will, usually after the funeral happens, um, after the wake, which is usually comes sometimes the same day or the next day, the body will come to the cemetery. They'll have a small graveside service, and then we actually bury the body. So um, that's when you come in, and the people who work with you. So yep. can you talk to me a bit about the actual mechanisms of digging the grave, putting sure. in the vault, putting the body under? So what happens is that um, we'll get a call from a funeral home, and they will request information on... Um, either purchasing a new space or an existing space that was purchased by another family member. Um, and we will do the research because we have electronic records here, plus we have to have written records by law in Massachusetts. We'll do the research to tell them whether or not there actually does exist um, those grave spaces. And then um, 
what we'll end up doing is if uh, there is an existing grave space, we actually physically go out to where the grave space is. Um, we, we probe it, which means we have a very long, um, I can't really do it in a picture zoom. Maybe you can see mm -hmm. it, but a very, like a, like a, like a four foot long stainless steel rod that has a point mm -hmm. on the end that has a T handle and you push it down mm -hmm. and you probe the grave to make sure that there's no other vault or casket in that spot. And once you confirm that, then you know that you can dig that grave as the, at the funeral home's request. So the probe goes underground? Yes. Yep. It goes underground. How can it, it has like a mechanism to like sense objects and... No, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like when you take, um, you know, like when you take a clip uh, pencil and you bang it on a clipboard and mm -hmm. it goes tink, tink, tink or a desktop. Well, the metal probe basically will, you can hit the top of the vault because the vault's concrete. Oh, and so then and you the, can assume the length. Of... Correct, the, the length and the width, and then you know that you can either dig to the left or the right of that particular vault. And okay. you just have, to, just have to make sure that um, you're putting it in between two vaults or you're putting it in the right space based upon what the family members, what the mm. family would like. Mm. So once that's been confirmed, you call the funeral home back and you confirm that with them and then they either tell you then and there or they, they call you later to tell you exactly when the, they'll, what day they'll be arriving at what time. Mm. So the funeral home is responsible for calling the, um, the vault company to actually put the, to call them to order the vault that gets brought to the cemetery. What are the funeral homes and vault companies that you most hear from in the area? So there's only one vault company. It's called Wilbert, Wilbert Vault. They're based out of Springfield. Uh, and the funeral homes we have, they're, they're all over the place. Seleuzniak's is local, Ahern, Child's Funeral Home sometimes, um, Mitchell Funeral Home in East Hampton. There's a funeral home in South Deerfield. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. So, and then we deal with funeral homes from all over the Commonwealth because we, we have had bodies come from as far as Boston. Mm -hmm. um, we've had bodies come from out of state. Uh, we've had, and we have a lot of cremated remains that come from, from everywhere. Um, and then once the, once the, the vault's been ordered, um, and so let's say today, today was the day we made the arrangements, most likely the funeral would be on Thursday or Friday. We would go out tomorrow and we would actually physically dig the grave. So what are the vaults usually made of? They're concrete. Concrete. So why, yeah. what, what, why do you need to have a vault? So in a, um, because what happens is that when the, over time, if the casket's wooden or even if it's steel, eventually the casket will rot mm -hmm. um, and cause the casket lid to cave in. And we mm -hmm. drive machinery, you know, like um, zero steer lawnmower, sort of like they have on Smith College's campus, mm -hmm. those kind of mowers. And what happens is that you will could fall into a depression. Oh. Um, because there's all the, when you're obviously when you're laying in the casket, your body, right? Your body is decaying, mm -hmm. but everything around you is, but there's a huge uh, airspace that eventually collapses inward and then creates this big depression in the soil. So you have to constantly go out and fill these depressions be, as they arise mm -hmm. over, over time. And we do have a lot of places like that in the cemetery where there's um, old wooden caskets. Mm -hmm. uh, Bridge Street in particular, Bridge Street has a lot of wooden caskets because vaults were not a requirement for many, many years. Vaults were only really required from like the mid fifties. 
Oh, okay. um, so there's a lot of graves that don't have them then. That is correct. So you will be driving along and all of a sudden a mower tire will just all of a sudden fall out, fall into a hole and you'll stop dead at Bridge Street. And that's because the, the soil has finally given way on top of an old wooden casket. Oh my God. Bridge Street has a really high water table. Okay. So what happens is that Bridge Street, uh, the ground shifts a lot underneath everything. So things move and you know, I've seen places where soil has disappeared for a long period of time, but the turf was so healthy and had a lot of roots that it held it together and you drive over it until one day you have a mower, the back end of a mower fall right into an old grave. It's just, it's just the way it happens. You don't really know, you know, you can't really tell that it's there and it just happens and the machine just goes kaplunk. I have a question I wanted to ask, but I want sure. to also continue talking about the actual burial process, but sure. I'm going to ask the questions so that you can at least think about it and maybe come back to me with an answer or okay. answer whenever. Um, it's just interesting because a cemetery is supposed to be functional. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to provide a space for people to bury loved ones and sort of, you know, putting people in place so that you have enough room for yep. people who die. But at the same time, it's also a place of history that tells stories of people's lives and mm -hmm. preserves certain traditions that change over time. And so when you talk to me about like graves that are so old that perhaps even their ancestors don't even know who they are, people aren't coming back to them. I'm just curious, like, is there ever a part of you that's like, why don't we just get rid of some of these graves and make room for make room for new ones to come in? I think that's actually a really good question and it's something that has to be asked, I think, of all people that maintain municipal, any cemeteries really anywhere because that's really what they, they that's what they do in Europe. Um, you know, so a lot of places in Europe, they will preserve a grave for 50 to 60 years and then after that, they just reuse the space and resell it to someone else. Um, there is a law on the books in Massachusetts. It's an old, Massachusetts has some old cemetery law, obviously probably from, it's really from the 1800s, mm -hmm. that says that a municipal cemetery has the ability to resell lots or grave spaces in the cemetery if there's been no activity for 75 years. Mm -hmm. So. What counts um, as activity? Uh, activity would mean like an active burial. Okay. So if there were no active burials, no requests for burials, then the city could actually take a survey if they could figure it out because it's that's a whole other topic. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, they they are, have the ability to take those spaces and resell them to someone, some other person. The problem is, is that the, this cemetery, Bridge Street in particular, there are really very, um, the written records for Bridge Street disappeared sometime in the 1950s for part of the cemetery which is the oldest part of the cemetery in, in the front um and which years which year is that from so the the cemetery started the cemetery actually was or the original cemetery was right where the courthouse is today on the corner of king and main so in the 16 and i don't want to i don't want to get it incorrect because i i don't have it off the top of my head but in the late mm -hmm. 1600s the um, aldermen of the town decided that they needed to expand the cemetery. Mm. So they bought the, the, I think they call it the Preacher's Pine Plain, that 
but I, um, which was where Bristree Cemetery exists today in the very beginning, it was, it was full of pine trees. Mm. So um, they moved all the graves from the um, side of the court of the side of the church where the courthouse is today and brought them to Bridge Street. Mm. So there are a lot of old graves at Bridge Street, basically that date from that time until probably so that there's let me let me go back. So Bridge Street Cemetery is broken up in multiple sections and they're it's broken up by the years of construction. So the original section, the oldest part of the cemetery was the, was the original part in the front. And then there's a section called the 1833 edition, which is right after the old section. So, and I'm, I'm marching, if you can imagine this without a map, I'm marching from Parson Street going to Orchard Street. Okay. And then after 1833 edition, there was another section of the cemetery constructed called the 1865 edition. Okay. And these were all additions that were constructed in that year um, and filled preceding years after that. So after that, there is a section along that runs parallel to Orchard Street. It's a very slender section called the 1900 edition. Mm. So from the 1900 edition until present day is really sort of the only records we have. So I, we have no records that go past 1900 that I could actively, so if you're looking for someone that's buried in the 1860s, we physically have to use um, a map and a lot of uh, a lot of hope and prayer that we actually find the names How, because there's no- How did no, that happen? They just didn't- No, I, I, I don't really know how that happened. Those people are long gone, um, but I know there was records kept of burials for all the cemetery because I can tell because we have all the um, certificates that every time you receive a body or a cremated remains, you receive a certificate. It's called a burial permit. Mm -hmm. So on the back of the burial permit is logged in um, a burial number that actually equates to a number in a book. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if we started at one to, you know, um, if we buried someone tomorrow, it'd be number two, number three, number four. So, mm -hmm. you know, Bridge Street Cemetery, we're in, we're in like the 18, we have like 18, I think there's like 1700 recorded burials in this book we have, but I know there's like probably like six to 7,000 people buried there. Wow. But I don't have any rec. I don't have a book that references those burial permits. We do have a book. We do have burial permits that go back to 1909. Okay. That re that reference. They, they're called internment numbers. Those numbers do not exist in this book. So there was another book somewhere. So this is how I figure this out. Wow. So and the so problem is, yeah. it's, it's like searching for a needle in a haystack. It's like doing genealogy um, and not really having not really having any um, data, any, any, any place other than you have a, maybe an obituary that says they were buried at Bridge Street Cemetery and a name and a year. If somebody comes looking to understand their own ancestry. Mm -hmm. They can't get any kind of information on the person they think is their relative buried there other than the location of their burial or the location of their gravestone. So we don't, right, we, we, don't, we don't really provide any kind of um, information other than the person was, the person is buried here, is not buried here, we can't find them. Um, you know, find a grave in the last 10 years has really done 
a lot of great work because find a grave um, is a really great tool to use and I use it um, when I have to do research mm -hmm. and I if I find the I will actually I have a, an account my own account the city account and I will actually log in the information I think people are looking to alternatives to being buried traditionally in this country I think more people are picking cremation uh, more people are picking green burials mm -hmm. Other people pick cremation, but they never inter their loved one's ashes. They, you know, they bring them to a favorite place. They bring them to the ocean. They bring them to a lake, to a mountain. The whole uh, memorializing of someone's body, like, has been very traditional in, I guess, many cultures around the world, um, and including the mixed, the multicultural diversity we have in this country. You know, so like back in the 1800s and even in the early 1900s and even today to some degree, you know, you, you some people were waked in their homes. You don't hear of that any longer. But I mean, the Irish, for example, which were this community was a lot of Irish people. They would wake their family members in their home and then they would carry them out in a casket, go to church and they would bury them at the cemetery. Well, we don't really do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also, you know, we're also. So I think what happened over time is that there's a period of time where that cemetery was very active and there's multiple periods in, 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 the, in the history of the cemetery. And then, you know, for the last probably, I would say probably from the like the 1960s and 70s until now, the cemetery has not had the amount of activity mm -hmm. that like Spring Grove has had. It's, it's different. It's not the same. And I think part of that is because... Yeah. Yeah. Spring Grove is more of a natural setting. Um, it's in Florence. There's 30 acres here. Um, it's quite expanse. There's a lot of um, natural grass area that's not that's not manicured. Um, so it's it's people love to come here and walk. Um, we do have kind of a large maintenance operation here, which is kind of a like a little bit of a an eyesore, but we try to really keep it kind of neat and quiet and respectful. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, Bridge Street is, is really not, it's not active like this cemetery is. Um, so I think that's, I don't, I don't think it's anything in particular. I also think part of the reason too, is that the appeal of Bridge Street where people are buried presently, they're buried like in the, in the back section of the cemetery, which is off of Orchard Street, if you've been in there. Yeah. So it doesn't like have like super curb appeal. Mm -hmm. So people really are super particular about like where they're going to be buried themselves. And some people are like, well, I want to be buried under a tree. and I don't want to be buried next to that ugly monument. I don't want to be buried next to this fence. So there's um, a lot of already like spots that have been called. And so people have fewer yeah. options. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's plenty of room at that cemetery to bury folks, but mm -hmm. I think that it's, I think people are just choosing to do things differently. You walk around here, you work around here, and you mow, or you, you're trimming graves, or you're trimming trees, and you look down and you see someone's name. You know, I often wonder, like, who was this person? You know, what, what, who, what, how did they get here? Why are they buried here? What, what did they do? You know, what did they look like? And it's really interesting. And so you'll have, you know, people are very interested in understanding where they came from. And um, I really don't know why people are so interested in it today. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I know why, but I think people feel like they, they have to know what their roots are. And I, and I think part of that is because I think we live in sort of a disjointed society now. 
um, where I think people really are longing for a sense of belonging mm -hmm. and they may not find that in their present life uh, for whatever particular reason, or maybe it was the way that they were raised or, and so people need to feel like they belong to someone, something. And one of the interesting ways to do that actually is, is or self-fulfilling is actually to find out where, where your family roots are from, where you came from, what your family did, you know, why are you here? You know, it's sort of like this big giant universal question. Last week, I biked down to the Parsons Street entrance to the cemetery. It was cloudy when I arrived. I walked through for a few minutes, taking in the scent of freshly fallen snow and observing the arrangement of colonial Victorian and modern day graves, thickly blanketed. I hadn't come to the cemetery in the winter, and definitely not during the day. This was a new sight for me. Something about it made me feel more detached from the spirituality I had felt two summers ago. Before coming, I had spent a few days reading through the cemetery master plan written and designed by Martha Lyon Landscape Architecture and Monument Conservation Collaborative in 2016. A master plan is a comprehensive understanding of how a place might change over time. The plan gave me an idea of the history and conservation choices within the cemetery, which Rich was quick to point out to me in his tour. He arrived in his plow truck. He changed from his work boots into his snow boots as he greeted me, and we began to trudge through the snow. We talked for almost two hours, and as we circumambulated the space, the clouds began to part, and the sun showed its face for the first time this month. So we're in this, we're bridging two different times in the cemetery. So this area right here that's on the North Street and Orchard Street then is called the 1935 edition, mm -hmm. which means that this was developed and pr was purchased by the city in 1935 and developed in 1935 to extend the life of the cemetery. This was a private field that kids actually in this neighborhood used to play football and baseball in. Um, and I knew this because the man who who's buried in that upright um, mausoleum over there, Mr. Menegat, grew up in this neighborhood. So he told me the whole story of this many years ago. Um, and we bridged the, the time frame. So this is, um, I want to say the, 18, mm -hmm. the 1860 edition right here. So the cemetery was built out in multiple editions. And as we go through, I'll show you where the other ones are. So that's the time frame. So a lot of these uh, dates are, death dates are in the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. um, but most of these people were born in the Victorian era, you know, in the 1850s, right. 1880s. You know, as granite, as granite monuments in the early 1900s and, uh, sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s started to come the rage because... Before that, a lot of the monuments were all white marble, mm -hmm. which is this type of monument right here, mm. the one that has the crack in it. And there's yeah. those are white marble, which were easily obtainable, inexpensive because they came from places like Vermont. Um, but they don't stand up to acid rain. Mm, which of is why they look like that. Right. So, but we didn't have acid rain in the 1860s and yeah. 1870s, you know. But granite is tried and true, um, and as we walk through the cemetery, you'll see how the, 
the monuments sort of change, you know, they're intermixed, and then all of a sudden you'll come to a section that is all purely white marble and all purely um, brownstone, which mm -hmm. was locally um, harvested from local uh, quarries, which is more in the front of the cemetery. I see, okay. And so are these original plantings from before your time? Oh, yeah. Or have some of these been integrated more recently? Uh, well, well, I'll show you some of the newer trees we've planted here. Okay. But the majority of them, all the mature trees that you see here were planted before me, probably. Uh, the Norway, so the Norway maples that are here, mm -hmm. the Norway maples were planted. Those were probably planted in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And those trees were replacement trees for the American elms maple was the replacement because that was like you know the best thing since sliced bread at that time so this is now the 1833 edition okay so the way that these um raised areas go in the 1864 edition is they go this way uh -huh. in the 1833 edition they go this way oh okay so so this is all 1833 here. Mm -hmm. This is 1833 on this side over here. And then over there is the 18, what is it? 1864. 64. Yeah, I think it's 1864. Okay. And then 1935 edition. Mm -hmm. on, this, on this section of the cemetery since I've been here. So mm. the last time we did a full-size burial in any of these sections was about halfway up the road to the left. Okay. I dug a full-size grave, a full-size grave back in like 2004 or 2005. But and is that technically still the 1864 section? That is, yep. Huh. Yep. Is that allowed? Well, obviously, yeah. Well, yes, no, I mean, but... it's fa family members that own that have uh, oh, that have like what you call ancestral rights or mm -hmm. right by pro right by not right by proxy ancestral rights, really, because a lot of these lots, you know, unlike uh, today where. Most people in this country, you know, do not stay in the same place that they grew up. Um, we are, as, as our generations have changed, we have moved all over the country. But back then, uh, you know, in the earlier, t earlier times of this country, typically most people and most family members stayed within the same community. They didn't venture very far. Um, of course, there wasn't the type of public transportation. There was no reason to go to Colorado because there's no <laughs> jobs out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so people stayed here. So family members had large family lots. Mm -hmm. And then it was just anticipated that you would have your whole family over multiple generations would continue to use these lots. So today, we have large lots that have uh, an unknown number of amount of people in them because we only have limited records. Mm, right, um, you were talking right, about and, that. Right, but, yeah. but people are allowed to be buried in this section of the cemetery very easily with ashes burial, as long as they can show that they have the, are the rightful heir to the, to, to the lot. How would one do that, considering there are limited records on you, your end? You would have to, you would have to prove uh, by ownership if you had, a, if you had an original. So every, every one of these lots is numbered, mm -hmm. and it has a family name. So if you actually have a document that states that you uh, that actually shows the deed for that, because every every lot is every lot that is sold, mm -hmm. there was a deed written with it, and I have the the deed books oh, that cool. go back to the 1800s. That's so cool. That are you know so all it's it's almost like an old fashioned checkbook where you mm -hmm. have you have your information where you wrote the check to and you rip the check out and mail it. It's the same type wow. of book. It has all the information of who it was sold to, what date it was, their address, um, wow. which won't correlate to today's, but you know, you can, 
you, it's it's hard to do, but it can be done. It's been done in the past. There's been other people that have been buried in here with ashes burials as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not it's not not impossible, mm -hmm. but it does take a little bit of work. Um, what would you say is like top priority of like restoring certain gravestones? Like what here looks like it needs like the most help. Well, we, so we had, in that whole um, master plan, we, uh, we hired uh, Martha Lyon to complete the master plan, and then uh, we had a professional conservator come through mm -hmm. and categorize the priority stones one, two, and three, and okay. one being the worst that were most critical, yeah. that needed the most attention, um, and then fought, you know, two and three afterwards, so mm -hmm. we... With the help of, uh, of a uh, uh, Mass Historic Grant and CPA funding, we mm -hmm. completed the uh, Phase 1, or the Priority 1 stones, not last summer, but the previous one, so oh. it would be the summer of 2019. Okay. So those stones are done. Um, Where are some of them? Uh, Do you see any here? We'll, ha we'll have to walk. I'll, I'll okay. see them. Yeah, right? that would be great. Uh, there's one right there. Oh, okay. So do you see that one right there that has a seam in the middle? No, yeah, right yeah, back yeah. here. Yep. I do. Yeah, right here. Mm-hmm. Oh, that one. So these oh, stones, that. So these okay. stones, these stones were snapped off at some point, just from years of. I mean, you can't even. Unfortunately, you can't even read them. Uh, there is something yeah. on there, but I can't see it. But oh. these are these were repaired professionally. This, and that so one. wow, yep. and that one too. Yes. Uh, and you know when a stone breaks, uh, like for example, there's one over there that's tipped on its side. Oh yeah. We typically leave it on the side of the monument, and then we, you know, eventually we'll have to we'll we'll have to come back and do. Um, we're in the process of trying to see if there's funding available to do phase two or okay. priority stones number two. Um, and then, of course, as time goes on, you'll still have probably some more priority ones that'll come up because mm. things break. They're old. They're not, yeah. you know, and the, the weather is unforgiving. So priority one meaning? Priority one meaning ones that are, like, severely damaged, um, right. snapped in half. Um, they've fallen over snapped because their half. foundation okay. is, uh, is poor. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, priority two stones would be stones that would have a lesser degree of... Uh, urgency mm -hmm. you know so if, if we didn't fix the ones that had bad foundations we might actually lose the actual correct location to where the stone correlates to the person oh. so that would be a priority one um, priority three is more of a, like a surface treatment um, that monument over there that large brownstone monument yeah that has that would be a priority two or three because it has a very uh, long crack in its face okay so that has to be sealed up because water intrusion is going in there and causing that to, uh, to uh, split open. Historic preservation is extremely important um, because I think really this is, a, this is a connection. This place that we're walking in is a direct connection to the people that built this city. On my way out, I couldn't help but wonder, when do we decide to make the plans for our own debts. I decided to ask Rich, 
and we pondered this idea together. At what point in your life do you need to start thinking about preparations for your own death? No, that's a really good point. I, I don't. Uh, that's really a good point. I don't. Uh, hello. hello. How are you today? Good, thank you. Um, I don't. You know, that's a good question. I've, I've the older I've gotten, I guess I have thought more about it. You know, I don't mm -hmm. want to saddle my loved ones with having to worry about what's going to happen to me. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I, I, you know, life is such a fickle thing. You know, my mom died when I was 29, mm. 30. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, she never wanted to saddle, never wanted to saddle me or my brother with any of the, anything that after, afterwards, but she knew she was going to pass. Mm -hmm. So she spent a lot of time thinking about what she wanted for her own service, and she she wrote it all down. Mm -hmm. And then she went over it with us, and then you know everything that she asked for, we that we were able to accomplish, we did. And uh, it's just I, you would think that I would learn from that lesson already, because I preceded my mom. My mom died at 53, and I'll be 55 in wow. October. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's quite, it's, it's an interesting journey. Mm -hmm. To me, this, this is almost like, this is uh, a, a memorial park. Mm -hmm. You know, this is almost, it, it's groomed like a park. Mm -hmm. It has a park-like presence. You just don't see people doing normal park activities here. Yeah. But this is really a place where you remember, you remember these people as they were when they were living. Because if you look at some of these inscriptions, not all of them have nice inscriptions. Some of them do, but they talk about the person as they were alive. You know, here lies the body of such and such, mm -hmm. and they were this to this one. And I think that it's really, that's the, the glue that kind of holds our human fabric together, I, I, I think. And I believe that, and that's why it's important. I think for, more important now, especially because the world seems to be in a little bit of disarray with this pandemic, and um, the division in, in not only this country, but other countries are how polarized, but I, the, the glue that still holds everyone together, whether they want to know about it or not, is that hum we're all the same species, right? We're all, we all came from somewhere and here we are. So I, I don't know, I, I think it's, I, have a, I get a lot of solace just kind of walking around. I don't walk around here often because <laughs> I'm always doing a lot of other things. I usually drive through here so yeah. walking through here is a good reminder of um i guess maybe one of the reasons why i have this job mm. um it's just a general reminder that be be thankful for the things that you have mm. and not the things you know and don't be cross about the things you don't have this was 413 ethnography thank you for listening next time i will be having rails to trails lobbyist and murphy realtor Craig Della Pena. I hope you can join us.